Assalamu alaikum and welcome to this episode of the Mindful Muslim podcast. On this episode, I will be speaking to Dr. Tariq Yunus, who has just uh, launched his book called The Muslim State and Mind, Psychology in Times of Islamophobia. We delve into his research and his work in psychology and also in a clinical setting. He is a senior lecturer at Middlesex University and we have a really thought-provoking conversation inshallah that I hope you enjoy. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Yunus. Thank you so much for joining me on the Mindful Muslim podcast today. How are you? Salam. I'm fine. Alhamdulillah. How about Alhamdulillah. Yourself? Fantastic. Thank you so much for, for joining me again. Um, I guess to start, it would be great if you could just introduce yourself to our viewers, give a little background on yourself, and then we'll get going. Yeah, sure. So I'll go ahead and give the short story, and then you can ask for uh, <laughs> the nitty gritty if you like. Um, so my name is Tariq Yunus. I am a senior lecturer at Middlesex University in the Department of Psychology. Uh, my areas of specialties in psychology roughly revolve around issues of culture, racism, uh, Islamophobia, and psychology. And those are the subjects that I often teach on. Mm. Um, in more recent years, I've kind of enveloped those more naturally within what I would call the umbrella of politics. So sort of the politics of psychology. And I think there's a lot of overlap of how different groups are racialized, the way racism operates. So not necessarily only about Muslims, um, but that's more or less sort of who I am. I am also a practicing clinical psychologist and that all of this sort of naturally informs the sort of work that I do. Amazing, amazing. Um, I guess uh, we also just wanted to congratulate you on the release of, of, of your new book. Um, and uh, we had the pleasure of promoting that as well uh, recently. Um, so I just wanted to congratulate you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about also the inspiration behind the book, um, what motivated you to write it, the title, all of that? Yeah, so the inspiration behind the book, I think my book was largely inspired just by years of, you know, um, let me say rather many different roads sort of leading to Rome. Uh, the Rome being the book, I had my clinical practice dealing with brothers and sisters, largely who've uh, experienced different forms of Islamophobia, different forms of marginalization. Um, my research background being in Islamophobia, um, you know, my, my doctorate thesis many years ago looked at how Muslims are marginalized across uh, the global north. I specifically looked at Germany, Denmark, and, uh, and Canada at the time. And um, I think just sort of a rising awareness of certain gaps in our, I guess, in our attention mm -hmm. towards how Muslims are impacted by Islamophobia and how we as mental health professionals position ourselves in attending to, that, to those dynamics of Islamophobia, so to speak. Um, so that was those all those kind of married organically to like be the background inspiration of the book. Um, I, I must admit, I also kind of accepted writing the book at the worst possible time in my life. And I, I think it was <laughs> my relationship with the book was at one point really of 
trying to, you know, um, frame certain ideas as legibly as possible, mm-hmm. as concretely as possible. Um, I didn't want to write a book where it became too complicated mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. too complex, both for the readers, but also for myself. Mm-hmm. To really just bring it down, this is something that hopefully will be an accessible book that if anyone's interested in psychology and or Islamophobia, Mm -hmm. they'd be able to access it. Inshallah, I hope uh, that it does resonate with with the community and the wider community as well, you know, whether they have, uh, they are Muslims or or otherwise. Um, I guess uh, one of the first questions I wanted to dive into was um, about Islamophobia and psychology, as you've mentioned, and Mm. the realms that you work in. Um, there's a debate about the definition of what Islamophobia actually is. So for yourself and having worked in this realm for years, what do you um, define Islamophobia to be? So I think (coughs) there's an official definition Mm -hmm. and then there's a definition that I put to work, so to speak, in Mm -hmm. the book. So I think the official definition is one that many people... um, you know, different groups, different organizations have promoted over the years, mm-hmm. which is that Islamophobia is a form of racism towards Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that further. What does that mean for Muslims to be racialized? One of the definitions I put to work in my book, and I can explain to you what I mean by putting to work, but the, the definition I work off of in the book mm-hmm. is that Islamophobia is about managing ideal Muslim thoughts and behaviors, that there's certain boundaries of what an ideal Muslim is in terms of how they think and how they identify themselves and how they behave. And these boundaries are sort of imposed upon us in certain ways. And, you know, brushing against those boundaries can result in certain negative consequences, so to speak. now, certainly, just for the fact that someone, uh, let's say, is racialized as a Muslim, even if they don't even identify as a Muslim. Mm-hmm. I'll give an example here. We know that Sikhs are attacked on the street, you know, because they're identified as a Muslim. And they appear. They appear as a Muslim, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So one's identity or one's choice in the matter is actually quite irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the, the embodiment of Muslimness there mm-hmm. already has very strong significance. So, mm-hmm. you know, what these boundaries are, are obviously quite fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's that's a very important point, at least when we start intersecting it with psychology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are some of those examples that were kind of coming to your mind when you were thinking about, you know, that definition of what you were working off of in your book? Yeah. I give a bunch of stories, actually. So there's a bunch of cases, and I can maybe introduce them mm-hmm. to you here. I mean, I think there's um, the case. So I I tried to juxtapose, or I tried to put um, together three different cases of Islamophobia within a therapeutic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cases are quite different just to show that these boundaries of Islamophobia... There's different histories to it. Islamophobia is not simply, oh, I hate Muslims. But, you know, there's complexities behind it. And we need to be able to grapple with all those complexities. Um, so in a nutshell, there's uh, the case of Ahmed, who uh, went to see a therapist. And, you know, the racialized white therapists. 
saw that Ahmed's faith, um, you know, played some sort of role in his anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. His his belief in Allah, mm-hmm. the irrationality behind um, his faith, his his uh, his convictions in Islam. The second case is that of uh, a sister, a Muslim woman who wears a niqab and she went to see a therapist uh, for trauma and the trauma, uh, sorry, the therapist told her that one of the signs of successful treatment will be her ability to remove her niqab. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the third case is that of Ibrahim, uh, who, uh, these are all made up names, by the way. Mm-hmm. So um, I can literally just make up any name right now. I'm just trying to stay consistent with the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the case of Ibrahim, who um, is actually experiencing uh, or was experiencing very acute discrimination in prisons okay. um, by the prison staff. And when he, he went to see a psychologist there, and he shared the experiences that he was going through, you know, the psychologist wanted to teach him um, mindfulness techniques, you okay. know, it's sort of like breathing exercises um, to manage or to better manage his the distress that he was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these three, these three cases are actually, you know, we might sort of bunch them up, I guess, rather simply under Islamophobia, but actually each one of these cases exemplify different histories, different trajectories, different ways in which Muslim thinking, uh, Muslim identity is managed or marginalized in different ways. And I think I can certainly, if you like, we can go into every single one of these cases and sort Mm -hmm. of um, unpack them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's cases like those where I'm sitting there and I'm realizing, you know, just saying, oh, this is Islamophobia and that's Islamophobia and that's Islamophobia is not really doing justice to all the nuances of uh, how Islamophobia operates, really. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it would be amazing to delve a little bit deeper into into one or all three of the cases. That would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of the, the, the first case study that you mentioned, what are some of the sort of hi- historical aspects that you think sort of led to that experience for yeah. that individual? Yeah, for, okay. So the case with Ahmed, that's, <coughs> uh, you know, I think that's often sort of the the common case that's, refer to when we think about you know how how do muslims fit into the sort of um i guess you could say secular therapeutic settings Mm -hmm. right so we think about issues of cultural sensitivity religious sensitivity cultural competency etc um and so just off the bat there's something about the fact that this therapist saw or was whatever his intention is or whatever the problem is if it's ignorance if it's prejudice whatever Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. we can put that aside for the moment we recognize there is a very distinct history of islam's role in 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 what in the western world um islam has always was always positioned as an other to liberalism here Mm -hmm. in the western world right so in the west People didn't just. I mean, I'm being. I'm. 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 I'm 
making a lot of blanket statements here just for the sake of simplicity, you know, mm -hmm. but people didn't just sit around a table and be like, okay, what are liberal values in terms of freedom, liberty, mm -hmm. whatever it might be? You know, it was always positioned vis-a-vis -vis an other. And there's actually a really fantastic book called Islam and Liberalism mm -hmm. that showed that how Western values were developed in contradistinction to Islam and to an other, right? And Islam and Muslims always occupied that that role of being on the boundary of Western world. And we know that and we see that continuously in, in debates and issues around, you know, do Muslims fit into Western society and the constant sort of uh, sensationalizing of this issue. So one of the one of the ways that's manifested itself is this idea that Islam is irrational. Mm -hmm. Right. Versus the West and secular values are the rational, right, the logical sort of way of, of experiencing oneself. And sort of the irrational irrationality of Islam, you know, has a long standing history in, in the Western world. And so just that case with Ahmed, we can't just simply reduce one could just simply reduce it like, oh, it's just prejudicial and mm -hmm. he needs to be educated. That Islam is not irrational. Mm -hmm. But I think that takes away from the history of how that is commonsensical, mm -hmm. right? The commonsensical, what people will call hegemonic. Hegemonic means that sort of commonsensical idea that there's something about Islam that's odd. Almost like that, inherent, that kind of view is there. Exactly. Mm. It's, it's inherent. There's something about Islam that's mm. odd that doesn't fit here mm -hmm. somehow, mm -hmm. right? And it's almost like this, this sort of natural instinct to, or reaction really towards yeah, absolutely Islam. i mean i mean over time one can imagine uh, uh, certain historical uh, things that have occurred are you know staying with 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 people so um, yeah. whether it's a therapist or not you know they will show up exactly um that's exactly it. in terms of the second case you mentioned about the uh female muslim yes uh can you elaborate a little bit more on that yeah and then i'll put it together with ahmed actually to show like highlight some of the differences so i think this case is really uh, fascinating and important and the sister herself she actually published uh her, her own story mm -hmm. uh in a book which is excellent um which we can share inshallah um so what i find very powerful here she went to see a therapist and let's imagine now the therapist is smiling mm -hmm. and is saying that they they want to help her mm -hmm. right like i want to help you one of the signs of successful treatment will be your ability to take off your headscarf right mm -hmm. it comes from this place of wanting to empower the client so to speak mm -hmm. um so i just want to hold on to that moment because i think often when we talk about islamophobia we think about it in terms of hostility immediately right like that's how we often think about any form of racism for really. sure and it's very kind of obvious to pick out and say that's that yeah exactly it's a little bit more aggressive maybe not so undertone and uh yeah that's it mm. which in this case she's smiling right it's mm -hmm. inviting it's for the purpose of like the the, the client's well-being or whatever mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and you know there's a long history there's a long history there too i mean malcolm x famously made the distinction between the wolves and the foxes. The wolves are those who are who are out to attack us, right? Like mm -hmm. I've been attacked on the street before. You know, I've had someone come and spit and kick at me, and it's like, you know, get out of my country, mm -hmm. right? So those are the wolves. The foxes are those that invite you in with a smile, right? And so they kind of try to lure you in, and then, you know, eventually, uh, eventually bite you, of course. 
Um, so I think there's something about that smile I think is important for us to hold on to because this is what we call liberal racism, which which I think we as Muslims have yet to really understand and conceptualize. Mm -hmm. But where is it coming from? I mean, this idea of, you know, uh, empowering the Muslim woman, there's a long-standing sort of uh, colonial and imperial history here of the West relationship with Islam and Muslim-majority countries. I mean, the Iraq war was famously justified, you know, on the premise of we're, we want to liberate Muslim women Right. from like their cultural and religious, you know, uh, regressive practices. Yeah, as a veil uh, to all the other things that yeah. we may have read since then about, about that. Yes, absolutely. And also the fact that um, it highlights how the hijab and niqab remains like a constant sort of like battlefield, mm -hmm. you know, like across the global north. We see in Quebec the hijab ban niqab bands in France and Denmark mm -hmm. and other places. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the signifier of the hijab and niqab and Muslim, what we call Muslim agency, uh, Muslim women's agency, like their ability to choose for themselves. Mm -hmm. Again, is commonsensical. So it belongs sort of within like, you know, the, the narratives that would naturally enter into any any setting, right? And in, in this case, it's, it's in the therapy. Um, and so, you know, maybe just putting Ahmed and Leila together very quickly, mm -hmm. you know, Ahmed, we could see a very particular sort of history there, again, Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. With Leila, there's again also a very particular history, and we can draw those, those narratives to make sense of that. And I think mm -hmm. that's what we kind of really need to do. I think the, the therapeutic settings do provide a very interesting sort of lens and in teasing all those out. But obviously psychology also plays a role in this. No, absolutely. Um, I guess uh, a little bit more, just sticking with Islamophobia, it would be great to hear um, either other case studies or things that come to mind in sort of explaining Islamophobia and the impact that it has, not just on individuals, but mm. to the people around them, their communities, yeah. uh, you know, that kind of wider level. That's a really good question. Um, and. To be, uh, to be fair to all the different people who I think have been working on this question, I think that is sort of the main, um, I would say, approach to our understanding of Islamophobia is trying to document the, especially the negative outcomes, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is sort of what's called the, the public health approach. Um, you know, so by documenting the negative outcomes of a phenomenon, in this case, Islamophobia, it it helps sort of, um, I guess, bear witness to the fact that it's real, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we know there's there's m many sort of outcomes, both on the individual level. I mean, you didn't want to talk about that, but we know individually, you know, in terms of anxiety, mm -hmm. among other things, you know, there's a lot of different things, uh, experiences, especially. Yeah, I mean, we can definitely delve into that. I mean, yeah. on a personal level, if you've had... I assume a similar experience to what you've had with a physical attack that, that's yeah. absolutely trauma and can stay with you for such a long time and change the way you think about other people around you. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think there's probably something there where I think we should allow ourselves for some nuance as well. Um, there's some forms of violence towards Muslims that are considered potentially more legitimate than other forms of violence. Mm -hmm. This is something that... Um, you know, what sort of violence towards or what sort of suffering of Muslims at the hands of Islamophobia is more legible, 
And by legible, I mean understandable that other people can perceive and say, oh yeah, that was really violent. That's what happened to you and that's a problem. So when I share that story, I often share with the intention to say that, okay, most people, when I say that, will recognize that was a terrible thing that happened to you, Tariq. Like, you know, I hope you're okay. Um, but I'd like to always bring that side by side with, let's say, um, Muslim mothers who uh, are threatened by social services to have their children removed from them because, you know, they're designated they're, or their husbands were designated, let's say, as X, Y, Z, you know, extremism, extremist, terrorist, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they have the entire sort of state security apparatus come down on them. And I've spoken to such mothers. I mean, subhanAllah, it's, 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 I, 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 can, I can't share, I can't even express the words of the suffocation, the anxiety that they, that they feel of, you know, oh, you know, my, my children are about to be removed from me and they, there's nothing they can do about it. Now, the attack that happened to me is Islamophobic and it can be easily read by most people as such. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the experience that that sister or the mother is going through is something that becomes far more complicated to read that, you know, that it's not simply one that we can all point at and say that this is Islamophobic. That's, that's actually a big, very big problem mm-hmm. of um, what we call, what I would call legibility. So what kind of Muslim suffering, at what hands, what forms of violence are we able to mobilize on and which ones are we not able to mobilize on? <clears throat> Um, as someone who used to consult for the Montreal police uh, many years ago, and you know, I've been interested in researching and writing on Islamophobia, you know, for for a long time, I can tell you, like, for certainly, we we haven't really been able to mobilize on Muslim suffering vis-a-vis Islamophobia beyond that physical verbal abuse right. much, right? Uh, it remains that sort of level. And I think one of the purposes of the book is really to say, look, there's all these different forms of experience of Islamophobia, and especially when it's legitimized through the state in some way, shape, or form, as we're seeing right now towards undocumented migrants, right? I mean, here in the UK, just recently, undocumented migrants are incredibly vilified. I mean, there's, there's all these different expressions um, of state violence that we um, we have really yet to capture, I think, as a community. No, absolutely. Um, what comes to mind, really, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, the things you've mentioned about sort of um, more subtle, almost, uh, Islamophobia that's going on that we're, A, not aware of, and also, B, not being able to address and then do anything about would you say they are microaggressions or is that a term that is um, not appropriate in this sense? Uh, I don't mind microaggressions. I mean, we can call it what, what we like. My only issue with microaggression mm. is, is I think it still makes it about that one individual. Okay. You know, so it just makes it about that one person mm-hmm. rather than I think what I'm trying to maybe point out a little bit more is more about policies, mm-hmm. you know, political climates, things like that, that like these are the different things that if... Um, you know, I, I did my research on the prevent policy, yes, which is a policy for anyone who doesn't know, um, 
uh, where, uh, let's say, mental health professionals are advised, not advised, they're told to have due regard in identifying and reporting individuals they suspect might become terrorists in the future or susceptible to radicalization, right? So now, the reason why I'm thinking about that as a policy is because if a Muslim mental health, or if there's a mental health professional sitting across from a Muslim mm-hmm. who's wearing the niqab and suddenly feels, or puts on the niqab, and this is a real case example, Okay. you know, and suddenly, uh, well, the case example actually has to do with the hijab. A, Muslim, uh, a woman converting to Islam, putting on the hijab. Prior to that, she was suffering from severe domestic violence, like really terrible domestic violence. She converts to Islam. And suddenly the mental health team, it was at an NHS, mm-hmm. they're prioritizing the possibility of radicalization over her domestic violence. And what I'm trying to get at with that is that certainly we can call this potentially a form of microaggression, mm-hmm. right? That's not really explicitly hostile towards the patient. But my point is that the what what was fundamentally at fault is that it's the policy that's sort of legitimizing and reinforcing these attitudes to be upheld in the first place, right? Um, and so I'm more concerned of how Islamophobic attitudes, which are really quite rampant, mm. are continuously and in fact increasingly legit- legitimized through policies, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. So when it comes to your research and prevent, did you delve deeper into kind of other institutions or, or um, places or settings, say education or, or elsewhere that, that you can kind of... Um, delve into a little bit more here for us now because you mentioned the NHS and yeah. uh, mental health practitioners or I'm guessing psychologists as well have this sort of um, responsibility I, I guess to yeah. to refer people uh, or patients if they if they think they're at risk I mean are there criteria like how how is this actually working in, in real life or is there is it a tick, tick box situation like what yeah. Is it a feeling that they go off? You just you just hit all the nails on the head. <laughs> it is a feeling. They're taught um, in the prevent. So when I did my research, uh, one of the things that I was really highlighting was the fact that in training, they are told to follow their gut feelings, okay. right? So they're all they're told. It's it's the same logic as if anyone, um, you know, travels in London, they'll hear a constant refrain in the trains, which is "see it, say it, sorted," right? See it, say it, sort of is really you see something, you feel something's weird, say it to the police, they'll get it sorted. It's that exact philosophy, right? It's really trying to institutionalize gut feelings, um, which is highly problematic from any sort of anti-racist perspective. You don't have to, you can choose anyone you want. (laughs) It's problematic. Completely subjective, completely off of just personal opinion. That's it, that's it. Um, Um, Prejudice, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's really bad. Um, you actually said something else, which is also equally tree, true. Uh, I forgot now, um, you know, what it is. Oh, I guess you were asking also about other settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's it's very clear um, that it's, especially in education, that's where uh, a lot of prevent was mostly sort of contested. But, you know, I think maybe to bring 
a very particular case that I always hold true to my heart. And I think this is important for us as mental health professionals, as Muslims in the community uh, who are interested in Muslim distress. Mm-hmm. One of the earliest cases, uh, it's not a case that I wrote about, but it's just a random Muslim young adult. Uh, she was 17 that I spoke with uh, very early on. You know, we just got to talking and she told me that because of the prevent policy, she's been withholding sharing her thoughts and opinions about things for years. Mm -hmm. She was 17. And that really struck me as so powerful, that suffocation that she might be feeling, that anxiety. I mean, imagine you're 17 years old and for years you feel like you've been, you've been suffocating yourself. Right. And I feel like, you know, we we as a community have done very little of really, I think, appreciating the qualitative impact of that. Right. Like we might sit down and be like, okay, you know, for how many years have you been suffocated? You know, like, oh, two, three, you know, but even if it was just for one minute, you know, there's something very powerful in that uh, experience that um, that she might be going through that, you know, in terms of the distress or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that we haven't really held on to or haven't been able to really attend to at least. Um, And so, yeah, I think there's a lot in schools that's important. Um, You asked also about how it works in terms of checkboxes. So Mm -hmm. some mental health trusts actually do have the whole counter extremism uh, checkboxes, which is like, I, I, maybe I don't want to go into too many details mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. so I don't complicate it, but mm-hmm. they're just really arbitrary. Fine. Like, oh, um, does this person exhibit like us and them thinking or whatever? Okay. And just okay. they're very random and arbitrary. Mm-hmm. And they embedded that within, within NHS mental health trusts yeah. uh, for risk assessments for all their patients. Mm-hmm. So all patients become screened for potential extremism. Mm-hmm. And this is where any anti-racist worth his, you know, two cents is going to come in and be like, whoa, that's really, really problematic. Mm -hmm. Because as we were talking about, if Muslims are racialized to being regressive, potentially violent, you know, unable to control their anger, all these things are well documented in research, right? I mean, there's psychological theories in psychological journals published until until today, where that association between Muslims and anger and all of this are still are still made and sort of still developed and 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 and, and reproduced. So we know that if a Muslim were to go into such a mental health setting, they're far more likely to elicit that sort of gut feeling in that in that mental health trust than just a random white person. Yeah, it's super interesting um, um, and sad and worrying um, yeah. that those policies are there. And this is, um, I think, not sort of a common around the globe. And if we kind of stick to maybe thinking a little bit more about the UK, um, do you have um, knowledge around sort of policing and how, um, I, I suppose... Muslims are almost targeted in a way or, you know, racialized, as you've mentioned before, or at at more sort of risk of being stopped or checked up on or those kind of 
kind of things. Can we delve a little bit into policing? Yeah, we can. <laughs> uh, I don't have all the statistics off my head. And I think it's important for me to also make a link that it's not just about prevent and even just not about Muslims, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So there's something about racism, which uh, speaks to anyone who's not white, right? Right. So if we think about stop and search policies, uh, I don't remember the exact poli- the exact statistic off my head. I mm-hmm. think black youth, racialized black youth in London, are thirty times more likely to be stop and searched by police. Something like that. I might be wrong about mm-hmm. the exact statistic, but it's significantly higher. Mm-hmm. We know border policing. I think with Schedule Seven arrests, uh, or it's called Schedule Seven stops, when a border police suspects that um, there might be something, anything worth highlighting about potential terrorism for, a, mm-hmm. you know, a passenger, mm-hmm. that they'll stop them at the at the in the airport. Um, and I believe the statistic again, I might be wrong, is something like ninety five percent of those stops are all Muslims. Um, you know, and often it can even be the same person many times. So they'll go and, you know, they'll be stopped and they'll be stopped coming back. And we know so many of these stories now. And because stop schedule seven arrests are so intrusive and um, so disruptive as well, because mm-hmm. you might be held for six hours just to be questioned. They take away, they take your phones, they take everything, right? Like these sound like, you know, as we're talking about it, these sound like whatever, kind of like an arbitrary sort of intervention or something that's happening to you. But, you know, it can it can be so anxiety provoking. Right. And I've spoken to people where there's this ripple effect that happens. Mm-hmm. It's not just about them. You know, their mothers become or their parents become hyper anxious. You know, everyone else, there's like this anxiety that spreads. That's documented, by the way, in research in the United States. Um in i know this might be slightly tangential to your question (laughs) no go ahead but i think it's relevant to say that there was really good research that was done that was showing that when there was a a police shooting of a racialized black man Mm -hmm. in the united states there's this ripple effect of anxiety that actually kind of sweeps across the country right um and, you know, it was documented in this one really rigorous sort of research uh, or um, study. But I feel like that's also something we can recognize, let's say, with border police. And we think about citizenship deprivation, you know, talking about racist sort of strategies that are mm-hmm, occurring. Mm-hmm. You know, Shamima Begum, her citizenship dep- deprivation, how that impacted not only obviously her. I mean, she She's the one that we're most concerned about. But many Muslims are also concerned suddenly I mean recognizing the conditionality of their of their citizenship and that they might be rendered stateless again what is the experience of that for us how do we make sense of that so I mean I think you know all these things are quite racist already Um, again hostility towards undocumented migrants like um, the hostile environment policies that were put in place by Theresa May trying to find people locate people who are undocumented you know telling them to leave the country that not only obviously affects muslims but there's an what we call intersectional right so it might impact someone who's not white but also probably because of how many of the people who are coming who are undocumented were coming from you know maybe the middle east from syria and other places 
also impacts Muslims. And then they enter into various other logics of security as well. So I'm, I guess I'm trying to take a fairly complicated question and, and make it a little bit more digestible. But yeah, I think there's a lot to this that we need to hold on to. Mm. No, absolutely. I think um, what comes to mind for me is I, I do like just talking about and discussing all the different policies um, and how they're affecting um, different people, as you say, not just Muslims, but in all walks of life, yeah. in all parts of our lives, you know, whether it is education or policing. Um, I, I, it makes me think, how should we respond? Is there, you know, just in your research or, or in your um, clinical, you know, in a clinical setting, uh, maybe even on a more individual level, um, and then thinking about organizations as well, how should we as Muslims be responding to some of these policies? Mm. You know, because we I, we could go towards the extreme and maybe just hating the West or hating, I don't know, the UK government for putting whatever policies in place. Yeah. But that's not going to get us anywhere. So, mm. yeah, from, from your research and your thinking and your reading around all of this, what um, might be a more positive response? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, well, we should always hate injustice, <laughs> but you know, this is where we belong and we need to make the world better for all of us. I mean, that's what we're working towards, right? And it's not only about for us as Muslims, right? I mean, what we're trying to protect the dignity uh, and rights of people, it, for us in Islam, it's a fundamental cornerstone of our responsibility towards all of humanity as well, right? Like it's not, this isn't something that is negotiable. I think what, in terms of what to do, I mean, my first advice for anyone listening, it's always important to emphasize that you never act alone in the sense of resisting, let's say, prevent policy or anything else, whatever racist policy or strategy you're upset about. We need to always work together. We always need to do things as a community. Um, and to that, I think we need to also think about wider forms of solidarity, you know, just with concerned groups, mm -hmm. you know, like stop and search policies. All of these actually follow very similar logics. Mm -hmm. um, there's a prevent database for people who are identified as pre-criminal. But there's also a gang matrix for, for black youth who are identified you know, uh, or stop and search on the on the street, so to speak. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot of um, obvious cause for us to work together, mm -hmm. um, you know, and develop wider solidarity. And, and I think also to put these things together, you know, that we we are, you know, we see prevent, we see um, stop and search policies, we see um, all these all these different policies towards undocumented migrants. Um, we see these all as symptoms of a wider issue. And the wider issue is what we're trying to address. Mm -hmm. Right. And I always tell people that because often I get addressed that like, OK, what do you want to do about prevent? You know, um, and I always begin by telling them that, look, for me, prevent is more of a symptom of a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we were to just remove prevent tomorrow, that, that'd be good, you know, insofar as that less Muslims are going to be affected, etc. Uh, but we need to understand where this is coming from. Like, how is it developing? How does it become into policy? How are Islamophobic, racist, xenophobic, 
discourses becoming so quickly anchored uh, and politically, uh, I guess, justified, right? And I think if we don't all work together to look at these root causes, um, I mean, I don't mean to be pessimistic. I know you want it to be hopeful, but we can, we can and should take with the signs that things aren't looking great. Mm-hmm. You know, I think not only here in the UK, but across the global north, we're seeing far more normalization of Islamophobic, of far right, sort of what's called far right, you know, xenophobic attitudes, you know, more politicians being normalized for that sort of rhetoric. So things aren't looking that great. And that should also inspire us. I know we need to be hopeful, but that hope will come from our action, right? We need to take with the causes that right now, that's, you know, things aren't that that um, bright, so to speak. Mm. Are there um, cases in your uh, experience that have come to you uh, as a as a clinical psychologist where um, this uh, person has experienced Islamophobia? Mm. What are the anything that you can share in terms of um, addressing that, or you know, dis- discussing what their experience was to get to a place where perhaps uh i don't know what the end goal would be would it be yeah. for them to maybe not feel so angry or or whatever it might be is there a yeah. case study that you can share with us there i actually bring up uh i think um a number of those case studies in the book but if i return to ibrahim um i bring him up in the book for for two reasons one about the fact that that therapist or that psychologist in prison told him was teaching him mindfulness, mm-hmm. despite the fact that he was actually still in a place of of threat. Actually, mm-hmm. he was still under threat. He was still under suffocation. Um, and I think we tend to have a blind spot towards Muslims in prisons. I think as a community, but we need to remember that fifteen percent of of the British uh, prison population are actually Muslims compared to 5% of the wider population, right? So they're, they, they're overrepresented in prisons. And prisons are also acute places of Islamophobia. Um, and so I tend to use, to think through that question of how do we support people who've experienced Islamophobia? I tend to think through um, this sort of gap in the community in terms of Muslim prisoners, mm-hmm. to make sense of that. And I think one thing that is... Um, that comes to my mind from from people who uh, are um, who who feel like they've been suffering, let's say, from uh, state violence, police violence. It's, it doesn't actually only apply here to the UK; it'll apply anywhere else. Is that yes, there is something of okay? How do we support this individual in front of us? Mm-hmm. Right? What are the sort of symptoms that that they're finding very difficult? You know, the experience that they're finding very difficult. I think it begins with bearing witness. I always tend to emphasize that. So yeah, I mean, this is also something that's fundamental for us as Muslims, is that we're just, first of all, just bearing witness to a person um, who, in most cases, people experience Islamophobia in different ways, especially when it's more of the legitimized forms of mm-hmm. Islamophobia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They keep it to themselves. They really do. They, you know, this is also, I think, kind of documented in research. You know, people will withhold sharing these experiences with others 
Um, so bearing witness, working with the individual, but a part that that's very important for me at least is to work towards helping them, you know, protecting them brought more broadly than what we can do in the therapeutic setting, right? And so often when I give therapy, I don't speak in I, I speak in we, as in there's a disimagined community behind me, behind all of us. We're there to support that individual uh, and protect them, let's say, if they're afraid that, um, you know, police are going to come and take their children away mm -hmm. randomly mm -hmm. at any point in time. And this is just something that is this profound fear that that they're tangling with, you know, and to consider, okay, what are the sort of, what are the systems that we need to put in place that we're learning through this individual to protect them from these sort of experiences, that they feel protected. They're not only being treated, but they actually feel a sense of protection coming from the community itself. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, I, I'm not maybe phrasing it in a way that's coherent, that can be like, okay, it's just here's a cookie cutter recipe, do ABC, right? But it's much more about, I think, just a philosophy or a spirit of, you know, um, it's not just about what occurs in therapy. It's about learning through people's distress to recognize what we as a Muslim community should all be shouldering mm -hmm. to support this individual. Right. Um, I guess sticking with, with uh, Islamophobia and, and mental health support that we have out there, um, as you mentioned, perhaps people are less sort of um, comfortable with, with sharing the experiences that, that they have had, um, you know, to seek counseling or support might be really difficult. So um, what do you think there is an importance in highlighting that, you know, Muslim mental health uh, practitioner or seeing a therapist is really important and is something that should be valued and should be, um, you know, so something that uh, individuals do to, to seek support. Yeah, absolutely. And mashallah, as in spirit and minds, you guys are certainly already uh, filling that gap, right? So I think there's something very important about, and I always insist, I know there's a lot of tensions that I'm holding on to. Like I can mention, oh, an NHS setting because <laughs> of prevent policy might potentially be racist. And I often get that question. And in fact, I got it at the book launch with, uh, you know, where Spirit and Minds was as well. It's a very legitimate question. Ultimately, if someone is in, a, you know, needs to speak with someone, then they should go and find someone to speak with, right? And um, there's no denying that what groups like, Spirit and Minds and others are doing is providing a place that would feel safer and more secure, you know, than potentially going to the NHS, let's say, if they're aware of the prevent policy that's in place, right? Just that simple awareness of, oh, I might be discriminated against, not because they think or are acting in any strange way, right? They just feel like, oh, I'm going to be racialized as a Muslim. I'm going to enter into all these different logics mm -hmm. I mentioned with Ahmed and Layla and everything else. So I think... It's very important that, um, you know, that people support in spirit and minds and, you know, other groups, mashallah, who are, uh, you know, I think of them as doors, you know, that we need to make these doors far more visible. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always also encouraged that mosques, every mosque should certainly have at least 
made available that door that like oh if someone comes in a state of distress go through here right and you should be able to find that support in case you need someone to speak with um so i think that's a basic level i would say i think fundamentally building on that i think we need to consider you know okay obviously the muslim you know, groups like in spirit and minds and others we're not going to be able to um right now as we see it you know it's we're fairly small right mm -hmm. and obviously most people are probably going to go through the nhs and things like that right so we have i think wider concerns of okay what what do we actually have to build moving forward in case let's say there's more discriminatory discriminatory policies that get embedded um within the nhs and again it's not only just about muslims we know there's more police presence in the nhs there's actually more police presence in schools there's a lot of things that are happening so how are how are we to develop moving onwards to create truly safe and secure places support systems holistic support systems for muslims who are in distress that would not only speak to their individual experience, but also um, to to the needs of the entire community, right? And also, I'm, here I'm not. I'm also bringing. I'm thinking about housing. I'm thinking about women's shelters. I'm thinking about all these things, right? How do we develop much more coherent, safe, and secure spaces for Muslims, much more holistically? Yeah, I mean, amazing question. It, it's just. It sounds like so much work um you know on our part as a community to do that but it's also i think uh, what you mentioned before about collaborating with other people around us yeah um to make sure that we are paving the way for some of those um policies that are a bit more inclusive um and not so uh targeting or 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 you know putting 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 uh you know a negative lens on on muslims in general or yeah. or people that are non-white yeah um, in your book, you do mention the Muslim mind. Yeah. And I wonder if you can elaborate on that a little bit more. As a, uh... <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I was just speaking to the Muslim mind, not as something that exists. There's nothing about the mind that's particularly Muslim. Mm -hmm. It's just to say that I think there's something about Muslim thinking and behavior that elicits very particular fantasies. You can say in the western world right so anger being one of them right so you know you take a white person who's angry about the polit political affairs you take a muslim that's angry about political political affairs there's something about that muslim mind it's suddenly much more fearful suddenly much more uh, exactly anything could happen at any moment that's right that's Risky. exactly mm. that, that's it and potentially that you know that muslims um you know yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, anger is actually a really, really important example here. And we see that with um, people's, let's say, emotional reactions to um, to what was happening in the Middle East. Uh, I actually can bring an example to that. I do bring an example to that in the book, which is the case of Khalid, who um, <clears throat> he... Uh, he he was flagged. I mean, his story is a little bit longer but you know he was essentially charged with extremism so to speak mm -hmm. um well all the charges were dropped by a judge by a court i mean the whole thing was just ridiculous 
Um, but the probation officer wouldn't let it go. And the reasoning why Khaled was still vulnerable was because Khaled still displayed with altruism and altruism is that sort of selflessness. Mm-hmm. In psychological research, altruism is considered a really positive thing. Mm-hmm. But because Khaled is Muslim, that sense of altruism, that sense of, um, I guess you can say that emotional hurt that he experiences knowing that Muslims are suffering, let's say, at the hands of an oppressor or a tyrant in other places in the world. Mm-hmm. That's seen as a r- vulnerability. It's written down as a vulnerability, as a risk factor, etc. So that sort of, that emotional configuration that Khalid has, that ironically would be potentially the exact same emotional configuration we're seeing among many, let's say, towards Ukraine. Which right? is like, a natural human instinct. Exactly, yeah. But like one that's also being super, uh, you know, like celebrated and lauded, you know, towards Ukraine. Like that Absolutely. we should all have that concern for Ukraine. And, Absolutely. you know, it should, it should um, you know, it should, it should uh, impact us emotionally. Suddenly for Khalid, and there's something about, that's why I meant like the Muslim mind in the sense that you can see how there's a very particular way in which it's that's reassessed reframed reframed Mm -hmm. exactly oh absolutely it's all worrying isn't it yeah (laughs) it is i i hope uh i hope any sense of worry that we carry Mm. from this is more just about it's it's really more just to inspire us to take these things more seriously Mm. come together i'm not having that awareness inshallah for 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 listeners readers um, you know whether whether they work in the mental health realm or not, but but that awareness, I, I mean, I've taken away so much from already from what we've spoken about. But um, yeah, I think awareness is is what I'll be taking away for sure. Yeah, and hopefully, inshallah, it'll also, you know, that awareness will bring us together. I mean, that's really the purpose of the book. Mm-hmm. I don't have answers, by the way, to like many things and many of the issues I'm bringing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the purpose is really just to say, look, there's all these different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one thing we haven't spoken about yet is not necessarily just about, uh, so we brought up a lot of cases about policing and security, but there's also about um, neoliberalism, which is more about the political economy and how the general population is being increasingly suffocated through austerity policies, you know, budget cuts, things like that, right. which we know in research has also a more detrimental impact on muslim communities right so that's even that's a different way of coming to this issue as well of like okay there's muslims who are in distress but many muslims are in distress because of what's happening in terms of like you know the the economy itself and where do we come in as muslim mental health professionals to to support these people right Mm -hmm. because there's been a long-standing critique of the side disciplines, psychiatry, mm-hmm. psychology counseling, etc., mm-hmm. that we we might be potentially often bandaging, um, you know, socio political, econ- economical issues, right? Like that people might be suffering from poverty, right, and increasingly suffocated through the cost of living crisis. And now we come in as Muslim mental health professionals. Yeah, and we might have an attitude of like, you know, we might bring in more centrality towards Allah and things like that, right? And our therapeutic techniques. Mm. But 
how are we really addressing the, these issues of cost of living that people are actually experiencing? And I think these are legitimate questions that have long been asked to the wider professions, and I think these are questions that we as Muslims also need to take more seriously. Absolutely, especially for professionals, as you say, that kind of notion of addressing the symptoms or potentially maybe helping a patient through something. Um, you know, as somebody who's um, sought therapy myself, um, I, I do feel like some of those um, methods that you pick up or you, that you learn um, are very much to help you continue through life you know, as a relatively happy, well-adjusted individual, but it's not, as you say, going to the root cause of things. Yeah. Um, so very, very thought-provoking for sure. Um, <laughs> Inshallah. Very thought-provoking. Um, I guess uh, I want to dive in a little bit more now into the, because I know that you're very interested in the political side of things and how um, policies or... Um, uh, or, or, or your belief as well that nothing is not political. Yes. So um, tell us a little bit more about that. And I know that's a very <laughs> general, <laughs> you know, sweeping kind of uh, question. But anything that you want to share about um, about that? Yeah. Okay. I should say I, I think that that question is excellent as is. Yeah. So <laughs> don't ever change it um, because that's exactly how I would answer. I mean, I think first and foremost. Um, I actually have an entire chapter dedicated to the book of just thinking about like, oh, you know, how, where do we locate politics? You know, what is political, etc. I'm not going to summarize the chapter, but I think there is something to say about um, how everything has, there, everything has a political function. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now that sounds convoluted and complicated, but I don't think. I think the example of the whole cost of living crisis uh, is actually a very good example of that, right? Like, even if a therapist comes in with the, with the best of intentions, I want to help you with your anxiety, mm. right? Even if that's not their intention per se to... Um, maybe bandage is too strong of a word, but I'll just hold on to bandage, mm -hmm. right? Like, just mm -hmm. really to bandage the financial constraints that's occurring to this Muslim and to like their family and everything mm. there is a function there that's occurring right and it's one that is not oblivious to us like we know this we know that many therapeutic services one very famous one in the nhs was the was co-developed by an economist right with that purpose of trying to get people to go back to work to be more productive to society right and even if both the therapist and the patient are unaware of that that's what they're entering right that's the that's where that therapeutic space comes from um and there's already very long histories to this very well documented from psychiatry from psychology um of like how therapies become popular which therapies become popular which ones become funded you know like all of these things are things that we as muslims need to be giving some consideration to um and actually to know on that i had an idea i was going to point out which i can't remember right now so i apologize no it's okay yeah. we were talking about politics um yeah i was talking about politics so <clears throat> there was something about a particular form of therapy 
Um, so not based on economics or stemming from those. Ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I think ultimately everything serves a purpose, and and that's not to say that oh, just because something is political, that means like let's chuck it out the window, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, I I I do. I do with with intent take a small critique towards mindfulness in some of my writings. Okay. I'm not critical of people who use mindfulness, mm-hmm. nor am I critical of like mindfulness itself, right? I should also admit I I use mindfulness techniques, right? So that's not the point. The point is just charting where mindfulness came from, mm-hmm. how, you know, it was that it became so popular and established. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's a really fantastic special issue uh, I mean, I don't have to mention this, but there's a special issue in transcultural psychiatry that spoke about the practice of mindfulness and how it was imported into the West, right, into the Western world. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about how mindfulness as a therapeutic technique was imported mm-hmm. is that it it came in and it went through this translation of entering into this like capitalist way of being, right, of like really just trying to help people you know, ground them, you know, manage their breathing, their, their you know, their sense of being better mm-hmm. for the purpose of becoming more productive or being, you know, returning to a sense of normality for the purpose of productivity, right? Whereas where it actually originated from, mindfulness had a whole ethical framework around it, right? And all that, all those, all that ethical framework was completely erased in in the imp- in the process of importing and translating it here, right. And again, that's not. Uh, it's it's absolutely it's not, not negating that, that it's useful. Like it's not negating it in it's our use, lives. Exactly, yeah, exactly. But yeah. if we need to be mindful of what that actually means, right? What does that mean? It, it's I think very indicative of one. What does it mean to translate Islamic ideas and practices in the world we live in today, right? And I I need to say that you know. It's very well understood that Islam can serve state purposes, like this, the purpose of the state, the purpose of the economy. This isn't something that I think most people, if they think of certain countries, one mm. whose name rhymes with Saudi Arabia, <laughs> I don't, I'm just going to say it up front. You know, we can understand that Islam and, you know, faith and religion can be perverted, or not, even if not by intent perverted, but it can be. It can be framed in certain ways mm-hmm. for particular purposes. Mm-hmm. That's my point. Mm-hmm. And so I think for, for us who are interested in Islamic psychology or Muslims inter- interested in bringing Islam more into psychology and whatever, mm-hmm. I think that the politics is something we need to hold on to because we have to consider, you know, what is what are we translating? What, ser- what, what purpose does it serve? into the wider framework beyond just the theory of, okay, let's bring someone close to Allah. And I bring up a case, I'll just say, I know I'm talking a lot, so I apologize. No, it's okay, carry But, on. you know, I bring a case, it's a semi-fictional case, it's actually many real-world cases I'm putting together into one person. And I call her, I call her Amal, a Muslim woman who is experiencing uh, anxiety. And, you know, she is experiencing the sharp end of the cost of living crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, everything is really constricted. And she goes to see another Muslim therapist who works on developing, you know, more a closer relationship with Allah and taqwa and God consciousness, etc. 
which alhamdulillah is good. Mm -hmm. You see, like this is where things become a little bit awkward to talk about because it's not to say that those things are bad. They certainly are. But if someone is being suffocated financially, right, through a cost of living crisis, what are we doing when we're just trying to get the person to accept the scenario that they're in, mm. right? Not necessarily accept, but part of the, you know, part of, I guess, the the outcome is sort of, okay, get through this. You Completely. can get, you know? Um, and we need to, I think, sit down with this a little bit more. I'm not saying I have an answer to that mm. because these are like way bigger questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and to be also frank, I think these most of these discussions I've ever had have always been with non-Muslims, to be very frank about that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think many non-Muslims have uh, engaged in these sort of questions, like, what exactly are we doing? You know, how do we, how do we not bandage, mm -hmm. um, you know, the sociopolitical conditions of people? Palestine is actually a really good example of that. You know, there's a really fantastic book called uh, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, What's the role of therapy uh, under occupation? You know, like these are these are like obvious questions that I think seem obvious to us when we say it out loud. Mm. But like, I think w as a Muslim community, we need to be attending to them a little bit more and thinking through how do what are we going to do about it? Even if we still make a conscious point to say, OK, I still think it's important to imp improve this person's God consciousness or taqwa or whatever mm. it might be. At least it's a, it's a conscious decision and not simply an artifact yes. of what we always do, for example. Yes, absolutely. I think, again, bringing it back to that awareness of knowing uh, the purpose behind whether it's policy or the way that we're conducting our counselling session or whatever it might be. Yeah. I think it's so, so valuable. Um, um, yeah, so, I mean, the case that you mentioned with um, kind of this woman that is, that is suffering with anxiety and she's... She's got all these other, it's not a holistic kind of treatment. As you mentioned, it's very much um, how do we help you through the anxiety rather than what are those fundamental things or situations that have led to you having these, uh, you know, this discomfort or this anxiety in the first place. Yeah. Um, I think there are lots of overarching um, themes or things that one could point to where it's leading to people having more mental health um, concerns or episodes or psychosis. Um, maybe there is a, a correlation between certain policies or the, or the way that the world is going. Um, yeah. Which, yeah, it's just lots, lots of questions, which inshallah will bring up some answers. <laughs> inshallah. I, 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 if I can actually add one point to that, because you just, when you were summarizing, I think you summarized it really well and you reminded me, and I had mentioned this two days ago, so I'll say in a quick point, um, the British Psychological Society did a report uh, a few years back looking at um, therapists working in the NHS. Mm -hmm. I think specifically therapists working under IAPT, and for people who don't know IAPT, it's a sort of short-term brief cognitive behavioral therapy to help manage people's symptoms to go back, usually to go back to work or going back it's to It's making business. me a little bit upset, to be honest, if I, if I can be completely frank. <laughs> I feel like it is. It's making me think about, well, why do I have to sort of... I want to get through my difficulties, yes, yeah. but... At the same time, I want to be a part of addressing some of those bigger 
things in society that are leading people down yes. this path, yes. which are so, it's almost like, oh, I forget, I'm sorry, this um, psychologist who did the study of Rat Park, you know, where, where they put the, the, the rats in a um, sort of a heaven for rats, where it's sort okay. of a beautiful cage and they have um, spinning wheels and whatever else to do. Yeah. And then they're given the option to, to have, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'll make um, mistakes in my explanation, but um, where they can uh, take drugs essentially, or just have some kind of sugary drink, I forget. Yeah. And then they have another situation where they put rats in a park that um, has no amenities, there's no spinning wheel, you know, it's, 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 it's unattractive and it's ugly and they don't have, um, you know, places where they can go and exercise, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the conclusions at least is that in the rat park that's not heaven, they will consistently go to that sugary, um, I'm sorry, not the sugary one, yeah. the drug concoction that they've got for them yeah. all the time. And they will end up dead after, you know, let's say a number of weeks. Yeah. Whereas the other rats where they're in a situation where it's, um, where it's um, more amenities, more whatever else, other rats to, 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 to congregate with. They were psychologically healthy rats. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think yeah. it's, yeah, when you do need to consider those, life situations that lead to people suffering and are, are leading to increased you know mental health problems That's and we haven't even touched on yet sort of um covid and maybe the impact of that on on students and and, and younger people as well yes absolutely um, i mean that's a big part actually i do touch upon that in that chapter on neoliberalism because covid had a very particular impact on marginalized populations anyway right so like covid really revealed all the different ways people and groups are marginalized in society. That's what COVID did. It didn't do it. I mean, COVID did a lot of things, but it certainly revealed mm -hmm. who has easier access to healthcare, who's on the front lines, who's whatever, right? Who are like, on the so fringes the, of those. Uh, exactly. Mm -hmm. Who who Who's receiving um, services, whatever it might be. Um, and I think what's interesting, like say, you know, the whole rat, that mm. whole rat experiment mm. is a really good example because mm. with, with bringing back to that British psychological study, mm. imagine there was a rat therapist now mm. in the hell part of, of that rat mm. chamber mm. and they had to give therapy. So I think wow. what's, what's very revealing is what that therapist, how that therapist experiences their practice. And the British Psychological Society study found that I think um, I believe, okay, so I might be saying the wrong stat about the wrong thing, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, I think 50% of therapists working in IAPT are depressed themselves, right? And there's a lot that's revealing there, right? Because think about that, like the rat therapist working in the hell chamber will know that, oh, it's because we're basically being suffocated, mm. right? And they'll mm. feel like the work that they're doing is always constantly sort of, you know, facing the juggernaut, which is reality, right? Just like, firefighting. It's firefighting, exactly, mm. right? Mm. And it's, it can be very depressing because obviously you'll, you'll see a patient and you'll see them again and it's, it's, it's always just continuously firefighting, as you said. So I think there's there there's a lot for us as a community to be able to sit down and hold on to and again i really not i don't want to admonish anyone any muslim therapists out there including myself mm. this is often this is how we come to practice right this is what we're accepting i'm just hoping to inspire us to to think a little bit further and how do we come together to 
to to work through this inshallah no absolutely absolutely um i guess it would be great to to carry on talking about the book and and maybe delve a little bit more into into you the writer behind the book i suppose um um so it would be great to just hear um a little bit more um of what actually um inspired you to go into psychology maybe take us back take us back into um a younger younger self and what inspired you originally to to get into this line of work okay so we're gonna i guess we're going to christopher nolan this conversation i'll start from the beginning right and then everyone understands everything yeah no so <clears throat> i was uh i mean i have a personally have a long-standing history of working with the muslim community so i've worked with muslim youth uh and different muslim youth groups for a long time growing up um and that's that was something that's very important to me um, and I think like many, we kind of recognize that there's issues in the community, um, which is sort of what brought me into psychology as a whole. Um, I was initially going under the path of neuroscience, but I realized, oh, maybe clinical psychology is a more appropriate path. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I was supported by uh, my father at the time. My mother had long since passed away, but she was the main inspiration of, the, um, of that connection to the community. Now, to make a long story short, um, because of that interest in the community, I was very interested in Islamophobia. So that's something I've always taken very seriously. Um, and so my interest in Islamophobia on the one hand, my training and background in clinical psychology is actually sort of, it's sort of cultural psychology. I was very interested in how people experience suffering and distress differently across the world, mm-hmm. which is why I brought up that mindfulness example, mm-hmm. right? So that's something that's always been my main sort of fascination is that mental health is not technically a global construct, right? Like people experience healing differently. They experience distress differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I worked largely with migrant communities, refugees, asylum seekers in my training, my background, uh, obviously many Muslims in that case as well. Mm. And so I realized through all of this that i felt like in my training there was a lot when you know when you're working with migrants and refugees and commute and marginalized communities there's something that i always found uncomfortable which is that there's a lot of essentializing essentializing is like being re- reductive of the community in front of you you'd be like oh this group is from pakistan what do Pakistanis eat and think and how do they believe and tell us more about their faith? What do Muslims think about jinn? And, you know, like you have like these really sort of reductive conversations that I've been like totally just like, yeah. like I had enough with at one point, you know, I think over the years. It's not that there's no use to these conversations at all. So I'm not throwing everything out of, um, away. My point is that I feel like there was a lack of what we call reflexivity. Like, who, who are we? Like, how do we think of ourselves? Like, you know, so that's where the politics came in. You know, how are we aware of our own um, positioning in, in society, our role in society, things like that. Um, so that, that's sort of how my trajectory mm-hmm. went into bringing racism, Islamophobia, culture and all that under politics. Um, it sounds like you sort of wanted to understand yourself and your own community more to even be able to then explain 
who you are. Yeah. And, you know, the Muslim community is very complicated. You know, I used to consult. I, I used to work as officially as sort of like a cultural consultant. Mm -hmm. So cases like a mental health, like a hospital would have a case of a Muslim man or woman who's experiencing jinn. And so I would go and be part of the team and like write up a clinical file and try to support them. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but, you know, jinn, just like even within us among Muslims, we often talk about jinn as like as if it's a one thing. But people, the Muslim communities across the world have different, have different ways of thinking of jinn and, and things like that. So Complete. it's way co more complicated there already, right? Mm -hmm. Like especially within Islam and Muslims. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like, uh, there's something about, um, yeah, sort of just the, I guess more the, I should say the ideological sort of attitudes of, of, of mental health institutions here mm -hmm. that I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, so that it kind of brought it back to like, who are like, not who are we, who are you? Mm -hmm. Right. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I think it, it, it kind of. There's this like, oh, we're apolitical, you know, like we're we're the normal apolitical sort of institution way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. You guys are the Muslims. We are here to make things more sensitive and convenient for you. And there's something about that sort of relationship mm. that I find a little bit problematic. A little bit worrying. Yes. Mm. Like almost like things can't sort of align. It's almost like that question of, um, as well, like science and religion can't work together kind of notion as well. Yeah, yeah, Maybe. exactly. They might come with all these things. And by the way, like this isn't something that's coming from me. You know, like people have questioned that point of what I'm saying, like cultural competence, like being competent towards like, oh, you're Muslim. So here's like the competency package for you. Mm. So there's uh, someone by the name of Jonathan Metzl in the United States. He developed as a... Um, Alternatively, he developed something called structural competence, which is not to be aware of, you know, just simply aware of other people's cultures, but being aware of one's own structures that you're operating in, recognizing the political economy that you're in, like, let's say, austerity, things like that. Mm -hmm. So that structural competence is an interesting alternative, like we can still be critical of it, but it's an interesting alternative way of, of like educating mental health professionals. Don't essentialize. Think about where you are. Where where are you based in society? Where what's your own ideological sort of biases and packages that you're carrying? And I think there's something there that we can hold on to. Absolutely. I think that that also kind of makes me think about um, just training that institutions might provide for their employees. You know, yeah. whatever institution it might be. Yeah. I know that there's a lot of stuff recently um, that I've noticed. Anyway, just. Um, about sort of being aware of other people in the workplace and that there are people that might have different beliefs or views to yourself, that kind of inclusion and diversity yeah. um, training that might be offered. Um, I think those are other kind of um, ideas that, you know, by understanding what you've mentioned make will make them more inclusive and better. Yeah. So that they're not just... Yeah. Well, I think... It, that's exactly it. So I think there is an emphasis on that. I think there is something about representation um, that's important in, let's say, different mental health teams and stuff like that. But th there is maybe some sort of political function of almost being only focused on that as well, I should say. Right. Like, I'll give an honest example. Like if there was a if there was a policy that was totally racist, 
I'm not going to call any names right now. Let's say there's a policy that's totally racist that's embedded within mental health mm-hmm. institutions. But the focus is on having then more diverse teams and mm-hmm. having more Muslims working with us. Mm-hmm. Does that really address the issue, right? It might bandage the issue to an extent. And I think often healthcare thinks in line of having as much diversity as possible. But, you know, I think the the responsibility is on us as a community of understanding where Islamophobia comes from. Mm-hmm. How does it operate? Mm-hmm. Not letting them tell us, oh, Islamophobia is simply lack of representation and having a Muslim voice at the table, right? Okay, fine. That's your opinion. Let's take with the evidence now, right? Like we have so many decades and decades of evidence now. You know, I think the idea of representation was long already um, was already long sort of uh, confronted, especially in the United States. This idea of representation politics. You know, there was still a mass inc- incarceration of Black youth mm-hmm. under the presidency of Obama. Obama is the president still a huge mass incarceration of black youth. How are we making sense of these two things? What would that mean for us as Muslims if every single NHS manager was a Muslim? Would that solve all the issues? These are questions, you know, I'm not answering them. I obviously I'm giving an indication of what my answer is, <laughs> but my point isn't to answer them. My point is for us to consider with history. Let's take it historically. Let's take with evidence and, and move from there. Absolutely. I think just from what we're talking about now, almost sounds like I'm hoping a second book is the is is. I'm never writing a book again. So just really? to let you know, this podcast is the end of my career. <laughs> no, 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 inshallah. What would you say was uh, was so hard? Because I know earlier you mentioned that you did um, yeah t- take up the offer uh, in not such a good time. Yeah, it wasn't a good time. Uh, I think it was a little bit more personal. I had mm. uh, my children are very young, uh, had a lot going on. And so I took it up because it was an offer um, that I thought, okay, maybe I'll do what I can. And I pray that Allah puts barakah in it. Mm. Um, you know, I, I guess I'll see based on the reception of this book, but I prefer not having to write another book, but having us all come together more in terms of discussions. Like if we if we were to create spaces mm. and have more opportunities for all of us to come together and discuss these things, that would be worth a hundred books. You know, that would be worth so much more than that. And I think, you know, the book is really supposed to just be like that instigator. Mm. But I'm hoping from from now onwards, we can create more like opportunities to discuss these issues. Inshallah, inshallah, inshallah it will be something that, um, that sparks lots of conversation inshallah. and and. and moving forwards inshallah yeah. um i guess we are coming towards the the end of end of the podcast i had a couple of uh, final questions for you um really uh firstly your advice to someone who and you have touched on this uh, as we were talking but um your advice your advice to somebody who has gone through um a traumatic or islamophobic experience in their life and then secondly um also addressing mental health practitioners and um, their sort of way of helping Muslims overcome that trauma, um, which again we have touched on. Yeah. But um, as a final, it's it's these are good ways of uh, it's a good way of finalizing. So I, I would say as a rule of thumb, anyone who's experienced distress or is in, in a state of distress, 
they should they should reach out you know as difficult as that might be um and certainly there's groups like inspirited minds there's other groups right that that offer uh muslim th services and there are services that i know of that are free as well mm -hmm. offered by muslims mm -hmm. and certainly people can reach out to me or other places to find out um who they can go to or obviously inspirited minds right so the rule of thumb is that if someone needs help, they should go seek it, right? And then, obviously, we sh we're going to deal... It's on us as a community to find ways of protecting them further, even if they have to go through the NHS and something happens, let's say. And I know cases of people who went to the NHS and, let's say, something like prevent referral happens. Mm. Okay, then we'll, 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 ha we'll develop and we have ways of protecting you even further, inshallah. So, as a rule of thumb, if, you're, if you need support, seek support, Right? Um, and for, for Muslim mental health professionals themselves, I mean, I think what I would like, my advice to all of us is to be, I guess, more politically minded mm -hmm. about our work. Um, and for us to, I guess, also have that a little bit more nuance and Islamophobia where it comes from, because it also affects us. I would be hard pressed. I've yet to speak to any Muslim therapist who went through training that didn't share with me some experience of their own, you know, self-censorship or suffocation or just sort of that anxiety. So we experience it as well. We rarely talk about it among ourselves. I mean, some of us might, right? But like, we really need to come together and recognize that what we're going through is is just like a, a tip of the iceberg type of thing. As a professional body. As a professional body, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. Just all these Muslim therapists, you know, mm -hmm. we've all experienced something. What is what are we experiencing? You know, I think many I know I know many Muslim therapists who let's say are going through training, and they can't wait to finish, so that they can finally get out of like a suffocating environment that they're in in their training, right? Mm. But I think we need to be able to sit down with that more, not to say that person should just go back in there, but I'm saying that we as a community and sit down more and be like, okay, what is happening? Why? Yeah, why is it happening? And I think we need to then pay most attention to and that's my final piece of advice we need to pay most attention to those who are most marginalized in the community because those who are most marginalized in the community are most revealing of how islamophobia operates right i'm thinking about prisoners i'm thinking about undocumented migrants you know like there's many people who are incredibly marginalized on many different levels and they reveal to us you know all these different circumstances that we need to be paying attention to when it comes to providing therapy uh, in experiences of Islamophobia. Absolutely. Um, I guess my final question, Tarek, was um, to ask you what you envisage your readers taking away from your book or what do you hope your readers will take away from your book? And then any listeners or viewers who would like to get a copy, how can they get one? Okay. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, in a nutshell... Uh, I guess psychology and therapeutic settings are not apolitical and that matters for Muslims. So that would be the nutshell, right? Um, and where to get a copy? You can get a copy uh, off, I think, almost most online retailers from what I know of. Uh, but what I can do is, inshallah, hopefully offer a discount code, maybe if anyone who goes through Inspirited Minds. Inshallah. And that way, if you go through the main publisher website, which is Sage, and put in the discount code, they can get 25% off, inshallah. Um, so, so yeah, that's about it.
Thank you so much, Zakalakhir, for, for joining me on the Mindful Muslim really? podcast today. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge and views and thoughts and asking thought-provoking questions. Zakalakhir, for having me. I mean, uh, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to just have a space to share my thoughts as well. So Zakalakhir. Zakalakhir for watching and listening to this episode of the Mindful Muslim podcast. Inshallah, you found it a useful one and I will see you on the next one.